Before I get started, I want to claim uh, the promise in Acts 1 for me and all of us that in Jesus that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and that we will be his witnesses from here to the end of the earth. Uh, we are being witnesses even now. Long chapter, long reading, but thank you, Dave, for doing that. So, yes, I am. So this fall, up until Advent, we're going through the Epistles of John, the series Dear John. Um, we started it last week, and we'll be going through them until the Sunday after thank, uh, Thanksgiving, when Advent starts. And uh, that series, uh, we're calling... The course, and we're going through the characters around the birth of Jesus, which should be fun. Kim is looking forward to tackling Mary. So, um, anyway, then after that, the first of the year, we'll begin our journey through Revelation. I think we're going to call that uh, series When the Man Comes Around. So, um, I ask on behalf of all of us, you step up here to, to, to teach, is to pray for us. Thank you that you have been, and, and please continue, and definitely add Kim to that list. He's preaching twice this fall as well. I'm sure he would appreciate the prayers. Um, but for now, we're going through these wonderful little gems of First, Second, and Third John. Let me encourage you to read through uh, each of these at least once a week, hopefully more. Uh, and uh, as we teach through the series, it won't take long. Second and third John are just one chapter, and first John is only five, so seven chapters in total. And as we look towards what is coming in the future, as far as our teaching, is a good thing that we go through uh, John's epistles. John talks a lot about God and love, sin and forgiveness, and the knowledge of, th- of the things of God, which is very appropriate as we fast approach Advent, the season where we celebrate the greatest act of love God did sending his son to be born on this earth. And it is appropriate as we approach tackling Revelation after the first of the year, that book of color and complexity, and of course judgment, it is appropriate to remind ourselves how much Jesus has done for us, and John's epistles do that. So I ask uh, brothers and sisters is read through those seven chapters at least weekly. Uh, as the saying goes, the Bible is shallow enough for toddlers to wade in and deep enough for elephants, elephants to swim. Uh, let First, Second, and Third John play that role in your weekly life by reading them. As the story is told of St. Augustine of Hippo, when in his conversion to Christianity, one day he overheard some children uh, chanting in Latin, Take up and read, tole lege, take up and read, which he thought was God's prompt for him to start reading the Bible, which he did in We have all been beneficiaries uh, since that time. So take up and read it. Um, To start off, I think I'm going to read a poem from Malcolm Geith called uh, St. Thomas the Apostle. It says this, We do not know. How can we know the way? Courageous master of the awkward question, you spoke the words the others dared not say and cut through their evasion evasion and abstraction. O doubting Thomas, father of my faith, you put your finger in the nub of things. 
We cannot love some disembodied wraith, but flesh and blood must be our king of kings. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, anoint, feel after him, and find him in the flesh. Because he loved your awkward counterpoint, the word has heard and granted you your wish. Oh, place my hands with yours. Help me divine the wounded God whose wounds are healing mine. I think I've mentioned this before from up here, but a few years back, uh, Sarah and I uh, discovered a YouTube channel called Baumgartner Restorations. Let's back a little bit here. Um, where an art archivist and restorer uh, films and shares his process of restoring dirty and even severely damaged art pieces back to visual health. It's a very cathartic channel to watch. Uh, in his latest posting, he, uh, he was restoring a giant painting of a ballerina in a dramatic pose. When he removed the old varnish, the whites, pinks, and golds of her dress popped out, and the multi-toned skin of the dancer radiated, and her blue eyes became intense. All this eye-catching movement of the subject of the painting, the ballerina, was surrounded by a gray-green color of background which framed her in her dress and pose. One of the steps uh, Julian Baumgartner, that's the guy who runs it, does in restoring is to find the place of, uh, places of overpainting and past restorations, remove them, and then replace them with materials and paint that are more easily removable in case the painting sometime in the future needs uh, another round from a restorer. In this painting, there was a large spot of bad overpainting in the background area right above the head of the dancer. After he removed the painting, uh, the, the bad overpaint, there was a large white spot the size of a large pecan shell above her head. His commitment for these kinds of places is to make those areas blend in and disappear, which he did utilizing fill-in medium and paint. The final result was that the white spot disappeared, inviting the eyes of the viewers to look at the subject of the piece and not the gray-green uh, gray background. In my preparations for this Sunday morning, I felt that my content followed a similar path. As Buzzy said last week, these are exciting books, letters uh, to be looking at, and I was excited to look at them too. Each chapter has a clear, engaging subject, like the ballerina in the painting. Here in chapter 2, there are many. But then, as I read the chapter over and over again the last few months in preparation, I felt like God was telling me not to address the visually stunning ballerina, but to point out the drab, dull, gray-green background. I found myself asking God, why? I mean, this chapter talks about Jesus being our advocate and propitiation. A great word, by the way, uh, that we need a chunk of time to define. First, uh, John 2 talks about when truth is in us and not in us. It talks about old and new covenants, light and darkness, not loving this world, but the one that abides forever. But my eyes kept hitting the phrases, I write. And I am writing, as if God was saying, I want you to talk about writing. But Lord, that's, that's not the big, that's not the ballerina, that's, that's not sexy. <laughs> that's not engaging. There are a whole, there's a whole section, Lord, uh, in this chapter about antichrists. And you know we're going to dive into the book that talks a lot about antichrists. Or the Antichrist, Revelation. So why not get a head start? Let me preach about that. Let me teach on the Antichrist. No, God seemed to say, I want you to talk about the phrase, I write, or I am writing. 
So I'm not going to talk about the beautiful dancer with the piercing blue eyes and the white and gold dress. I'm going to talk about the gray green field around the beautiful dancer. I'm going to try to make the teaching I do here and enhance the subject. There's something to be said for this. Julian Baumgartner's intention for neutral spaces on paintings is to be commended, to repair them to the degree that they don't distract from the major parts of a work of art. So that says something not only about the value of the subject of the art, but also the value of the non-subject in the art. And I think we can learn something from the Apostle John by looking at his use of the phrase, I write and I am writing, that will cause us to see the major subjects that much better. So I want to look at three things related to John using I write or I am writing. I want to look at the past, present, and future of that phrase. Past, what is the, con- well, what is the context of that phrase? Present, what is the impact of that phrase for us today? And then future, what is the ongoing or the coming of that phrase? So the past. What struck me about this phrase is that John uses it pretty much only here in this section of his letter. The chapter structures are not original to the Bible. They were put in around the 13th century to help with uh, finding verses and chapters or places in the Bible. But this phrase about writing occurs only in chapter 2, with the exception of one other time in chapter 5. It's like he got hooked on the, on the concept and the idea around I write or I'm writing, and it all spilled out in that part of 1 John, and then it briefly made an appearance later in chapter 5. The context of John's writing here is the late 1st century, probably in about the 90s AD, about 60 years after Jesus. Tradition says that John ended up in Western Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, around this time. He was exiled to Patmos, an island off the western coast of Turkey, for preaching the gospel in the region. He was released from the island because of his age, and he returned to Ephesus on the coast of Asia Minor, where he died somewhere around 100 AD. So he wrote this letter and probably all the works of his, on his, by his hand that we read uh, probably late in his life, several generations after Jesus' resurrection. Remember, by this time, the apostle Peter and the rest of the twelve were probably dead. All martyred deaths. The apostle Paul and his band had taken the gospel as far as Rome, perhaps even to Spain, before Paul was beheaded in Rome during the reign of the emperor Nero, 30 years before John wrote these letters. The church had been around long enough to be found throughout the Roman Empire. By this time, several scattered but severe persecutions of Christians had happened and more were to come. But the church was around long enough also to continue to face internal problems, which was probably a motivating factor in John writing these letters. And there's even debate as to what order he wrote then. Some think he wrote 2 John, then 3 John, then 1st, or, you know, there's debate, but he he wrote them. The suspected controversy that John was addressing was related to a group that emerged in this time called the Seceders. They had left the church, Big C Church, because there was only one at the time, and began forming their own churches because of a major disagreement about the nature of Christ. Such a controversy about Christ was not new, nor would it end with uh, time, because the nature of Jesus the Christ would continue to, to dog the church for centuries. And we even have such controversies today, so we could say that it has continued to affect the church for millennia. What was happening at this time was that some of the leaders and teachers of the seceders 
were going back into the local churches and trying to persuade other true followers of Jesus to their beliefs about the nature of Christ. John was having none of that. So he wrote his letters to the churches in the region of Western Asia Minor to have them circulate amongst the local congregation. This context adds to trying to understand the phrase I write. John was responding to that controversy. He was responding to people who did not believe the gospel coming into the church and trying to draw people away. But he wasn't writing the letter to the invaders. He was writing to his fellow followers of Christ. This may seem trite to us. People are coming into our churches and stealing them away with lies. Well, I'll show them. I'm going to write a letter. (laughs) I'll write a letter. And it's like, all right, okay, John wrote a letter. Remember, there were no cell phones. There was no digital communication devices back then. Traveling was out of the question for John because he was probably in his 90s. And travel back then took longer and was more dangerous on the roads. Add that the culture back then was more of an oral culture in that many times uh, things were written down and had to be read aloud and proclaimed because not everyone could read. And the materials for such communication were surly limited, which I'll get into later. I did a little research and are not exactly sure, but they think uh, maybe at its high point in the Roman Empire, about a third of the population could actually read and write. Today, that number is much, much higher, which speaks to this issue, too. But let's, um, let's think about the who is writing this letter, and maybe that will add weight to the phrase, I write. This wasn't just another believer in Jesus from a nearby church writing their beliefs down to defend against liars coming into the church, though that would have been enough because they would have been defending what is actually true. No, this was one of the twelve who was chosen by Jesus and followed him. This was one of the more than 500 people Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. More important, this was the disciple whom Jesus loved, as is recorded in the New Testament. I think this phrase, I write or I am writing, has a strong connection to the words written in the previous chapter, one, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. The Apostle John had real life encounters with Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Let me read more. John 13, 4 and 5. He, Jesus, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Very familiar passage to all of us. John was there. He had his feet washed by Jesus. John 19. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciple, he was on the cross at this time, he loved, the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The one called the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. 
Jesus spoke directly to him from the cross, saying, Take care of my mother. So his feet were touched by Jesus. He heard a command from the very voice that created all things, Take care of my mother. And one of the most poignant examples of who John was is the same passage I read of Jesus washing the feet, which is later in John 13. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, remember that one, that's John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. That phrase in verse 28, 28 that says, at Jesus' side, could also be translated at Jesus' bosom. John was leaning against Jesus' chest. John heard Christ's heartbeat. He had his feet washed by Jesus. He heard a command from the cross, and he heard Jesus' heartbeat. This is not an ordinary person writing a letter. Let me read from John chapter 1 now. Remember, John wrote this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son. Does this not carry more weight now? When you think about the hand that wrote that line, had his feet washed, heard a command from the cross, and heard the man's heartbeat. Brothers and sisters, as I worked on this sermon and was thinking it through uh, this point, the level of significance of John's writing, even a simple phrase as I write or I'm writing, grew so much more in depth to me. As I think it should for all of us, I realized that the phrase I write had so much more weight. When John is addressing his beloved brothers and sisters in the church, beloved children who are being lied to and being lured away, he writes the phrase, I write. That phrase is an existential experience, not an abstract idea. When he writes, I write, he is feeling Jesus' hands wash his feet. He is hearing the words, behold your mother, in his ear, and he hears the laughter, as he hears the laughter of the Roman guards gambling at the foot of the cross. Imagine that. Jesus gives that command, and John's hearing all the derision around him. But he's also feeling and hearing the beating heart of Christ as he reclines at table right before Jesus gives him the bread and the wine. This is my body. This is my blood. That is the context. That is the past of I write. But what about the present? So... I think we have to take into consideration for the present that we live in a very different culture when we hear the words, I write. It doesn't carry as much weight because it's so ubiquitous. Think about it. I was doing some research. Something like how, many, uh, how much paper is made in a year is 300 million pounds or something like that. How many pages of paper are used by businesses a year? On the average, 10,000 pieces of paper. How many tweets do we write? How many posts do we place and we tap it in on our little keyboards? I mean, writing is very common for us today, whether it's digital or physical. So when we hear somebody say, I write, 
Okay. Write what? So, but when you hear it back then, I write, it wasn't as common. Paper was made from papyrus, from plants that were hammered, basically pressed, uh, clean of water, re rehydrated, then pressed together, and then sent out to be used. And they had three different levels of papyrus uh, I was reading. The lowest level you couldn't write on, it was used to wrap things. And then uh, the second level was used for more common writing. And uh, the highest level was used for the more important and rolled into scrolls. And then out of that we get the word biblos. Out of that we papyrus we get the word paper. And see, that wasn't as common. It took a lot of effort and time to find paper and get it put together and write things down, which is different back then than it is today. Today, it's ubiquitous. We have paper. I can walk right into the studio there and grab a ream of paper that I buy at the corner office store. But in the first century, the followers of Christ had the wonderful blessing of being able to read something from the hand of someone who actually touched Jesus. One degree of separation. What a unique blessing. Way past however many degrees of separation there are between us and Kevin Bacon. So, but here we are 2,000 years later, and I'm not sure how many degrees of separation there are between us and John, but it's probably a lot of degrees of separation. So how do we take the existential phrase I write and the weight of its meaning and bring it today and ask, how does it relate? Which is why I included the reading from John 20. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in, stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John didn't leave his fellow believers, his beloved children, out to dry, nor did Jesus leave us in a similar state. It is right here in the encounter with Thomas that he talks about us. For you see, just as John had existential encounters with Jesus, so did his brother disciple Thomas. Thomas was there when the doubts, when the doubts of Thomas, or John was there when the doubts of Thomas were thrown to the wind. Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God." Jesus said to him, "Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." Jesus says, just as Thomas, that even John, as he were listening to the words, that are blessed because they have touched him. Jesus said, "John and Thomas were blessed because they have touched him." But so are those who have never seen Jesus as they have. Jesus is saying that we are as blessed as John and Thomas. Even though we were not there to have our feet washed by him, or to have a command given to us by him, or to hear his heartbeat, yet we are blessed as well. Now listen to John's words from 1 John. He says, I am writing these things that you may not sin. He writes, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. He, John writes, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. 
He writes, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already saying. Think, think about that. John is writing this to his fellow believers in Asia Minor, but he's writing it to us as well. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John and Thomas knew Jesus, who to them was not an abstract idea, but a breathing person. A person who was abstractly unique, to be sure, but not as thorough, not a thorough abstraction. Jesus was real to them. And by Jesus' words to Thomas, he wanted us to know that he is real to us just the same. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I have not seen, nor have you seen. But I believe, therefore I am blessed, are you? Practically speaking, this means that everyone has to reckon with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't leave an option for anyone else. John says this in the passage. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Thomas says it in John 20. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas knew who he was. My Lord and my God. John said he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. So the world has to make a decision, has to reckon with that. I recently came across a video from about seven years ago showing a panel debate discussion in Australia that included Peter Hitchens, the brother of well-known atheist Christopher Hitchens. Peter Hitchens, like his brother, was also an atheist at one point in his life, but then he had an encounter with a 500-year-old altarpiece in an old French church that challenged his experience and sent him on the road to becoming a follower of Christ. He is now a defender of Christianity, a journalist and commentator, and travels around the world speaking. In this panel debate, someone from the audience asked the question, which dangerous idea do you think would have the potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? Which dangerous idea do you think would have the potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? One of the panelists immediately answered, first, it's population control. There are too many GD people on the planet Sometimes in my darker moments, I am anti-choice and believe abortion should be mandatory for about 30 years. He said, that's a dangerous idea. It's pretty grim. Not sure I want to live in that world with that guy in charge. When Peter Hitchens was asked the question, he said this. The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. And that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. There was some clapping and some laughter when he said that. But then he was asked, Hitchens was asked, why? Why is that this? And this is what Hitchens said, because it alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibility and turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we have a duty to discover that justice and work towards that hope. 
It alters, alters us all, and if we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It is why so many people turn against it. What are you going to do with the Apostle Thomas's my Lord and my God answer? What are you going to do with why the Apostle John said and wrote, I write? They both hinge on the most unique individual in human history, and practically speaking, we need to reckon with that now, presently. So, I've looked at the past of I write, the present of I write, now what about the future? Looking at the past and present are relatively easier than looking at the future. We can read and research what has happened in history and assess its importance in our lives. We live constantly in the ever-present, asking or not asking ourselves, what must I do to live a good life? But the future, that remains impossible to tell because it's always and ever one or more steps ahead. But I think even here in this passage, we can see hope in the future Let's just look at what it says in the English. Look at this phrase in verse 8. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. And verse 27, But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. The tone of these passages seem to spill into the future. Darkness has passed and now light is shining as if it will not only shine now but forever. The world is passing away But those who are of God will abide forever. Again, John is talking about what abides in us in verses 24 and 25. And he writes that that abiding ends in the promise of eternal life. Future. And then in verse 27, the idea of abiding is mentioned as if it is a now and for for good type of thing. The whole of the Judeo-Christian worldview first started in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel is based on the already not yet motif. The entire temple system of the Old Testament was set up as a visual exercise and reminder of not only what had happened in the past, uh, see Genesis 3, but what was to come in the future using the present act of an animal sacrifice. Jesus, when he came and was revealing himself to others as the Messiah, There was positive response, but there seemed to always be a response of, you're not the kind of Messiah we were looking for. In Christianity, there is the ever-present belief in Jesus' return, most clearly shown in Acts 1, 10 and 11, which says, And while they, the the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's going to happen in the future at some point, these angels said. So I believe that when the Apostle John writes, I write or I'm writing, he has in mind this reality. That Jesus' return will happen and be as real as how he and the other apostles saw him and touched him. 
That means that the ideas John writes about in response to the invading seceders are not just ideas, but are truths that far outdistance the lies anyone could tell, tell them or anyone could tell us today. So even in the simple phrase of I write or I am writing, we can see the depth of truth that God was tackling from that, uh, from tackling that frames the bigger things like Jesus being our excuse me, propitiation for sin. Like darkness is passing away and light now shines, like our sins are forgiven, that we have overcome the evil one because of him, that God abides in us. Take time to really think and meditate on this. Whether you follow Jesus or not. If you follow him, then meditate on this in order to find encouragement and hope. Think about that. The reality of John being in the presence of Jesus, having his feet washed, hearing his heartbeat, being given a command to take care of his mother. By the way, tradition says that Mary was with John in Western Asia Minor. Uh, I went to that area, and they actually pointed out, I don't know if it was an actual structure, they had a rebuilt house that they said that's where Mary lived. So John kept the command Jesus gave him. Take that, think about it, followers, fellow followers of Christ. That is the reality of what John wants us to see and hear today. I write that so that you know that. If you don't follow him, then think and meditate on this in order to reckon with it. It is the most dangerous idea in the world. But don't take my word for it. You read the accounts, and I invite you to make a decision. I want to close by reading uh, portions of a, a poem uh, from Alfred Tennyson called Strong Son of God, Immortal Love. This apparently was um, perhaps his concession that he was now a believer in God uh, who it, he had struggled with even though he had been brought up in that kind of home. And uh, this prayer kind of is it's a preface to his book um, in memoriam and uh, it is thought that he wrote it last because he had finally recorded in writing that book with the fact that there is a God and perhaps his name is Jesus so this is portions from that that um, poem strong son of God immortal love Strong Son of God, immortal love, whom we that have not seen thy face, by faith and faith alone embrace, believing where we cannot prove. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. We have but faith. We cannot know, for knowledge is of things we see, and yet we trust it comes from thee, a beam in darkness. Let it grow. Let knowledge grow from more to more, but more of reverence in us dwell, that mind and soul, according well, may make one music as before. I write these things, my beloved children, so that you may not sin. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you were real and that you are real. Thank you for giving us the example of John, your beloved disciple, that you touched his feet and that compelled him 
to live the rest of his life for you and to even do simple things like write to his brothers and sisters to remind them of the truth and reality of who you are. Remind us of the truth of the reality of who you are. As, we are follow- as we, some of us are followers of you, remind us so that we might live the next day in your spirit and by the power of your spirit. If we're not followers of you, Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would allow the reality of making a decision about who you are come to a moment in their lives. That they would reckon with the most dangerous idea, a dangerous idea that has a wonderful ending. An ending that you call eternal life. Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you for providing that. Thank you for showing that. Now be with us now as we finish our worship and continue our Sabbath day from here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.